And immediately, I knew what passage that I wanted to share with you this morning. It's actually a passage I preached a little earlier this semester in preaching lab. Now, in our preaching lab, just for the sake of time, because we have a lot of guys that have to preach for the professors, you have to be under 30 minutes. And most people will cut you off. Uh, one of the professors has an alarm clock that when it hit, hits 30 minutes, it just goes. And he doesn't tell you to stop. The alarm just keeps going <laughs> until you get the point and stop. So I've never had it called on me. But I was excited because, you know, I have to cut out a lot of stuff. And those in my Bible study know I can talk about a lot. So I had to cut out a lot of stuff to get this passage under 30 minutes. And I'm excited that I get to go, you know, 40, 45 minutes um, in uncut out, a lot of stuff I cut out. But I think we'll see in a minute why I was really excited to bring this passage to you this morning, especially um, with what's going on in the world. So we're going to go to Ezekiel 47 this morning. Ezekiel chapter 47. And I've titled this message, A Stream of Hope from Zion. Ezekiel 47. For frame of reference... Where in time is this going on? This is the Babylonian captivity. We're maybe a little bit more familiar with placing Daniel. Daniel in the lion's den. That Daniel, right? That Daniel with the Babylonian captivity. Well, Daniel was in the first wave of captives deported from Judah and brought into Babylon. That was about 605 BC. Ezekiel was the same age as Daniel but he was brought about seven years later from Israel uh, or Judah over into Babylon in about 598, okay? Ezekiel, he was a Levite. He specifically, he was of the priestly line. He should have been a priest in the temple. And that that starts when you're 30 years old. You start serving as a priest. After being in in Babylon for five years, he turns 30, He can't fulfill his function as a priest, but God commissions him as his prophet there. And so he lived among a group of exiles outside of Babylon on this uh, Kibar River. It's actually a man-made canal. It diverted some water from Euphrates, probably for agricultural use. And so he begins his ministry And Ezekiel is one of the books in the Bible that it's basically pretty much chronological. As you go through it, there's like one chapter that's structurally placed out of order, but it's chronological in the order of his ministry. And there's a lot of time markers. In the first half of Ezekiel, that's chapters 1 to 24, all his prophetic speech is proclaiming God's judgment upon Jerusalem because of the people's unfaithfulness to God. So imagine that. You're one of the exiles taken from your homeland. You're probably desperate for just any sort of hope that you could return, that things would be like they were before. And now you have this Ezekiel guy. He's constantly preaching that the city you came from, the place that you really call home, is going to be utterly destroyed. And then after preaching that for about seven years, if I did my math right, in 
586 BC, it happened. The temple in Jerusalem was demolished. And now suddenly this prophet that had been preaching God's judgment, saying this was going to happen, now what does he do? The second half of Ezekiel is all about proclaiming hope to the people. That's chapters 25 through 48. And chapters 40 to 48 are the climax of this hope he's given for Israel. Ezekiel is given a vision of the temple that will exist in the millennial kingdom. And he's led around on a tour of it. Chapters 40 to 42 detail the design and dimensions of the temple. 43 to 46 show the return of Yahweh's glory to the temple and describe the worship that's going to occur during the millennial kingdom. And then chapters 47 and 48 describe the land. You see, God had promised them a Messiah who would rule from Jerusalem, bringing peace and prosperity to the world. And they should have been longing for that day. But as they looked around at their situation, things were not yet how they were promised to be. In fact, it was about as completely opposite as it was promised to be. Isn't it so easy to despair when God doesn't work on our timeline? But the river in chapter 47, Ezekiel, gives them real hope that God would be faithful. He would reestablish Israel and the land which once flowed with milk and honey would be transformed into an absolute paradise beyond imagination. And so, like the Israelites who were in captivity, do you sometimes look around at the world and think, it's not supposed to be like this? You see war, corruption, hurricanes, earthquakes, both on the same day here recently in LA that's crazy earthquakes not crazy hurricane floods drought famine I mean we look around and see the cult of child mutilation in the transgender movement right we see the cult of child sacrifice and abortion don't we say man this this isn't how the world should be the world is in rebellion from God. And in light of what's going on in Israel today, don't we even more long for Christ's return? I mean, in our own country, we've all seen there's been gatherings, even riots, I dare say, celebrating what Hamas did. Celebrating that, what they perpetrated against Israel. Don't we long to see Christ return and turn the remnant of Israel back to himself? That they would be united with their God, that he would put an end to the perpetual conflict, which is foretold in Genesis 16:12 and Judges 2:3. We look around and see that things are not as we think they should be. But God is faithful. And like the Israelites, we too need a real hope that God will restore all things. 
And so Ezekiel's vision of the river flowing from the temple in the millennial kingdom is God's promise that he will one day pour out blessing on all creation. And though our world often looks bleak, this life-giving river in Ezekiel 47, 1-12, it provides you with a real hope that God is faithful to his people. And the promise of this river encourages you to turn to God and to trust him despite how bleak the current times may look. God is your hope. That's pictured in this river. We're going to look at this passage in two parts. First, we're going to see the river grow large. In verses 1 to 6, see the river grow large. Let's read it. Ezekiel 47, starting at verse 1. Then he brought me back to the door of the house. And behold, water was flowing from under the threshold of the house toward the east. For the house faced east. And the water was flowing down from under, from the right side of the house, from south of the altar. He brought me out by way of the north gate. And led me around by way of the outside to the outer gate, by way of the gate that faces east. And behold, water was trickling from the south side. When the man went out toward the east with a line in his hand, he measured 1,000 cubits, and he had me pass through the water, water reaching the ankles. Again he measured 1,000 and had me pass through the water, water reaching the knees. Again, he measured 1,000 and had me pass through, water reaching the loins. Again, he measured 1,000, and it was a river that I could not pass through. For the water had become high, enough water to swim in, a river that could not be passed through. And he said to me, Son of man, have you seen this? Then he led and returned me back to the bank. Of the river. And so, in the preceding chapters, this angel has conducted Ezekiel on a tour of the temple grounds. And Ezekiel had documented what it looked like. Now, there's reason to believe that this angel is the angel of the, the Lord, the angel of Yahweh, the pre incarnate Christ. If you look back to chapter 44, it says, Then he brought me back. Verse 2 Yahweh said to me, Verse 4, then he brought me. Verse 5, then Yahweh said to me. And if you read this speech from Yahweh all the way through chapter 44, 45, 46, all the way leading to 47, there's no indication that this person who is doing the conducting and who is doing the speaking is Yahweh. And so this is most likely the angel of the Lord, the pre-incarnate Christ himself, leading Ezekiel around. And so now to understand the first two verses of chapter 7, let me give you a little sketch of the, that temple ground tour that, that Ezekiel went through. So the temple area is a square, and there's an altar in the middle. Okay, The temple itself is to the west of the altar, and it's facing out east. And its back is, is up against the western wall, so there's no access from that side. But there's gates on the north and the east and the south around the temple and the altar. 
And then there's an outer courtyard and gates again, a second layer of gates around the north, the east, and the south. And so now in verse 1, Ezekiel is brought to the door of the house. That's the temple building. So he's in the inner courtyard and he sees water flowing from under the threshold of the temple door. It's just a little trickle heading straight out and passing by the south side of the altar. It must have been small enough that it's not interfering with the worship and the sacrifices going on that he had talked about before. Just a little trickle passing by the south side of the altar and heading out towards the east gate. But there's a problem, because back in chapter 44, it told us that when Yahweh's presence had entered the temple through the east gate, what happened? The east gate was closed behind him. And so Ezekiel is out here looking and seeing this trickle of water towards the east gate from the inside, and he can't see what becomes of it, where it's going, what's going to happen, right? And so that's why the text in chapter 2 says, He brought me out of the north gate. So he's brought out through the north gates completely around the outside of the whole temple complex and then around to the east gate. And so now he can look back at the closed east gate from the outside. And these gates aren't little doorways. They're about 15 feet wide. So it's a big passageway and the east gate's closed. And there's a few steps leading up to each one. And so Ezekiel now is outside the whole temple compound and looking back at the east gate, and sees the steps up to the east gate. And he saw a trickle coming in from this side, and he's amazed at what he sees next. Right? In verse 2 it says, Behold, water was trickling from the south side. So from the south side of the east gate, the south corner of the east gate. And this word trickling, it's a graphic word in the Hebrew text. It's the word paka. It's related to the word for flask or jug. And the idea is that this verb sounds like water dripping from a flask. It's just barely coming out from the closed east gate. It's like drops. Paka, paka, paka. You can hear the water dripping, right? Now the angel takes a measuring line and he measures a thousand cubits from the gate. That's about a third of a mile in case, you know, you're not up to speed on your dimensions with cubits. So he goes a third of a mile out each time, and he has Ezekiel cross the water. And the first time he crosses, the water is to his ankles. And then he goes another third of a mile, and he has him cross a second time, and then it's knee deep. And now a third time, he's a mile out, and it's to his loins or his waist. And then at the fourth stop, so now he's just one and a third miles away from this little drip coming out of the east gate, this little drip out of the temple. One and a third miles later, it's deep enough to swim in. Now, a normal river, I think we all understand, doesn't do this. right? It's physically impossible for a narrow, shallow stream to become a deep, wide river without any other tributaries feeding it. And there's no other tributaries feeding this river here. It's coming from this little drip coming out of the temple. 
And how many evangelical commentators, even ones we'd say are conservative, say that the unnatural growth of this river indicates that this vision is only a metaphor. They say it can't be a real river in the future. Let me read. Uh, One commentator says, No amount of water divining will confirm Ezekiel 47. Another says that this river would be in contravention of the established laws of nature and could only exist as a perpetual miracle. Yeah. Exactly. It can only exist as a perpetual miracle. And I think you, like me, we understand that the God who created the heavens and the earth, the one who upholds the universe, all creation to this day, I think he can handle that. (laughs) He shows this river in such real physical terms. Who am I to doubt he means what he says, right? So we have this river in just one and a third of a mile. It goes from just this drip, this trickle coming out of the temple to a huge, powerful river. And now at this final measurement stop, it's apparent that Ezekiel tried to pass through, but he couldn't. It's not that he couldn't swim, but what does the text in verse 5 say? It says the river could not be passed through. The river itself was uncrossable. What's the implication? It had to be a strong, rushing current. And when you think about it, you realize that Ezekiel is out in the middle of it. In verse 6, it says he has to be brought back to the bank. So Ezekiel's out in it, trying to cross through. There's no, it doesn't say he was prompted as the previous times to try to cross through, whether he just you know, tried on his own, figured that's what he was supposed to do. But, you know, he gets out in it and realizes this is intense. (laughs) You know, I I can't get through it, even though I can swim. And so while Ezekiel's out in this uncrossable river, the angel asks him a question. And the question here is the hinge of this passage. In verse 6, the angel says, Son of man, Have you seen this? Have I seen it? I'm practically drowning in it here. No, we know that's not what the angel means. He says, do you understand what you're seeing? Do you really get it? And this isn't the first time that Ezekiel has been asked this exact same question. If you go with me back to chapter 8, You remember the first half, Ezekiel's preaching judgment. And Ezekiel is shown in a vision, pagan worship happening in the temple grounds. And so in chapter 8, verse 15, it says, He said to me, Do you see this, son of man? Yet you will see still greater abominations than these. And then in verse 17, he says, Do you see this, son of man? Is it too light a thing for the house of Judah to do the abominations which they have done here? That they have filled the land with violence and provoked me to anger still more? 
and then 18, I, I will also do this in my wrath. So in these two times, he's saying, you think you've seen how bad this is? I'm going to show you how bad this is. And then verse 17, God says, you think you see how bad this is? Now watch what I'm going to do about it. But back in 47, it's quite a different situation we have going on here. And even if your words in the English text are a little bit different, in Hebrew, it's exactly the same sentence, exactly the same question. Have you seen this? So God's saying, do you really see how amazing this river is? You think this is incredible? You haven't seen nothing yet, Ezekiel. And so we've seen the river grow large in verses 1 to 6. And now in 7 to 12, see the river give life. See the river give life. And let me read the rest of the passage starting at verse 7. When I had returned, now behold, on the bank of the river, there were very many trees on the one side and on the other. Then he said to me, these waters go out toward the eastern region and go down to the Arabah. Then they go toward the sea, being made to flow out to the sea, and the waters of the sea will be healed. And it will be that every living creature which swarms in every place where the river goes will live. And there will be very many fish, for these waters go there and the other waters are healed, so everything will live where the river goes. And it will be that fishermen will stand beside it. From Engedi to Enaglaim, there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Their fish will be according to their kinds, like the fish of the great sea, very many. But its marshes and swamps will not be healed. They will be left for salt. And by the river, on its bank, on one side and on the other, will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither and their fruit will not fail. They will bear every month because their water flows out from the sanctuary and their fruit will be for food and their leaves for healing. So in verse 7, Ezekiel first observes trees on either side of the bank of the river, but quickly the angel diverts his tension. He wants to appoint him to observe where the river is going and what it's doing. It runs down from the temple towards the east. So you remember the temple was facing east, running out the east gate, running to the east into the Arabah. That's the Jordan River Valley. Now, you need to know some geography here to understand this. So Israel has a central mountain ridge running up the middle of it, basically, and Jerusalem is on that central mountain ridge. And then to the west is the plain and then the Mediterranean. To the east is a descent down into the Jordan River Valley. The floor of that is all below sea level. And it goes from the Sea of Galilee, and the Jordan River runs about 75 miles down through the middle of that valley into the Dead Sea. And Jerusalem is on the central mountain ridge. It's about 2,500 feet in elevation. But directly to the east of Jerusalem, where the water is going to flow, is a little problem. The Mount of Olives is there. 
and it rises 200 feet higher than Jerusalem. And so you say, how can water come out east where there's a mountain there before it gets down into the valley? But verse 8 says, the waters go out toward the eastern region and go down into the Arabah. So the terrain must be a little different than how it is today. And Ezekiel's vision wasn't concerned with how it got that way. He's just telling you what he saw. But we know from a later prophecy, Zechariah 14.4, that Jesus Christ, the Messiah, is going to return. And where is he going to return to? The Mount of Olives. And when his feet set down on that Mount of Olives, Zechariah 14 says that it's going to split half of the mountain go north and half south. And now what do we have? From Jerusalem, you have an open channel straight down into the Arabah, into the Jordan River Valley, straight to the east. And guess where you end up? If you go directly east from Jerusalem, you're at the northernmost tip of the Dead Sea. That's where this raging river is headed. Okay, the Dead Sea is the lowest place on the surface of the earth. Its surface level today is a little more than 1,400 feet below sea level. It was about 100 feet higher uh, back then. In the last 100 years, it's gone down a bit. So it's about 1,400 feet below sea level, and the average depth of the ocean is just over 600 feet deep of that Dead Sea. It's, It's a pretty amazing thing. Just by comparison, Death Valley is at a rather wimpy 282 feet below sea level. So if you've been there, and I know we have people in our Bible study who have recently gone out there, um, yeah, the Dead Sea is way lower than that. Now, the Dead Sea is called the Dead Sea because nothing lives in it. It's 10 times saltier than the ocean. So Hippocrates, who was the father of modern medicine, you may have heard the Hippocratic Oath, the oath that doctors are supposed to take, Maybe once used to take, I don't know, different day, different discussion for a different day. First do no harm, right? So Hippocrates, who was the father of modern medicine, he's the first documented one we have that wrote about the antibacterial properties of salt. You see, for millennia, millennia, salt was used to treat wounds to prevent infection. And although we don't do that here in our culture today, We do use it for the same properties in another common home remedy. Have you ever had a cold and a sore throat and you gargle salt water? If you put half a teaspoon of salt into a glass of water, you get a solution that's 1.2% salt water. The Dead Sea is 34% salt water. You gargle that solution of 1.2% salt water, and it's supposed to kill bacteria, and viruses and stuff in your throat. What do you think 34% salt water is going to kill? It's everything, right? You don't stand a chance. You don't see the Dead Sea appear often in the Bible. This is one of the few places where you do. And historically, it's not been of much significance either because it's dead. The only industries there today are the mining of salts for cosmetics and industrial use. They're not the same thing. There may be industrial strength cosmetics, but two different things. 
And there's a little bit of tourism, just a little bit on one small portion of it where people go to get in the sea for skin and for, because it's, it's really cool, really neat to float in it. But the river that's flowing from the temple, what does the text in verses 8 and 9 say? It says that the Dead Sea is going to be healed. The saltiest body of water on earth is going to be healed. This word, healed, it has the sense of restoring something to its proper state. So you see, the Dead Sea shouldn't be salty. I mean, it's an inland body of water fed by a freshwater river. Now, there may be some geologist here that's going to tell me exactly why it should be salty, and it makes sense that it's salty. But the text said it's going to be healed, be restored to the state it should be in. So I maintain that it should not be salty. And verse 8 says that the waters, look at it, the waters go toward the sea, being made to flow out into the sea. Now, if you're looking at the ESV, it smooths it out a little bit but the NASB and the LSB render it quite literally there. It almost seems a little redundant. The waters go toward the sea, being made to flow out into the sea. And I wondered, why, why did the angel say it this way? And I realized what happens when fresh water meets salt water. The two don't want to mix. You end up with a little region of brackish water, which is just less salty water, but you've got fresh clearly on one side and salty clearly on the other side. That's exactly what happens where the Jordan River hits the Dead Sea today. And actually, I read that the Dead Sea is so salty that the salt pushes up into the Jordan and makes actually the bottom end of the Jordan salty. So the Jordan River isn't overtaking the Dead Sea today, and it's been trying for thousands of years. But when this raging river from the temple that started as a trickle, as a drip coming out of the east gate of the temple. When this raging river hits the Dead Sea, its waters are forced out into the Dead Sea, and the fresh is going to overcome the salty. Now, this too isn't natural. You know, you can't add enough fresh water to salt water and end up with fresh water. Go down to Santa Monica and take a glass of salt water and put it in a five-gallon water cooler and fill the rest with fresh water. What are you going to be drinking? Fresh water? No, you're going to be drinking... It's, yeah, it's less salty. <laughs> but it's salty. You can't add enough fresh to make it fresh. But that's the miracle of what this river does. The salt is gone. It makes it totally fresh. And this historically dead location will, for the first time, become absolutely teeming with life. It says the abundance of fish will be like the Great Sea. So that's the Mediterranean out to the west. Today, fishing industry on the Mediterranean is about a $5 billion industry. But when the Dead Sea is made fresh, its fishery is going to rival the Mediterranean. In verse 10, the text says, that fishermen will stand beside the sea from Engedi to Enaglaim, there will be a place for the spreading of nets. Now, Engedi is on the western shore of the Dead Sea, about halfway up its coast. And when I went to Israel this past uh, summer, 
We stayed two nights in Engedi. Actually, if you can put the picture up, last minute I decided to show you a picture today. So this is from the hostel we stayed at in Engedi. Uh, it's a real place. We know where it is. It's, it's exactly in the same place it was in Ezekiel's day. And this is looking across the Dead Sea. Now, we don't know where Enaglaim is. And, and this is amazing because this is a pretty huge sea. And you look at it and you, you're looking for boats. Surely there's a boat on the sea somewhere. It's, it's just nothing. Absolutely nothing on this huge, gorgeous sea. But Enaglaim, we're not exactly sure where it is today. There's good evidence that it's actually directly across from Engedi on the Engedi's on the western shore, so Enaglaim on the eastern shore. And so you would be looking at it. It's somewhere over there along those mountain ridge, probably is where Enaglaim is. And Enaglaim had to be a real place, just like Engedi was, even though we don't know it today. Ezekiel had to have known where it was, and the people that he uh, prophesied to, the captives in Babylon, had to know where it was. And so the text says that there's going to be a place for the spreading of nets from Engedi to Enaglaim. From shore to shore, there's going to be a place for spreading of fishing nets. Is that around the north side or around the south side of the sea? Yes. I think it's around the entire sea. That is how teeming with life this place will be. But note in verse 11, it says, its marshes and swamps will be left for salt. This is why I include this detail if it's not real. You know, The deadest place on earth will be transformed, but there's still recognition that some salt is useful. In chapter 43, verse 24, it says that salt is going to be needed for the temple sacrifices. And we know salt has many useful everyday purposes. And so, ladies, if you like those fancy mud masks made with dead sea salt and that sort of stuff, you're covered. It's okay. It's not going to be dead sea cosmetics. It's going to be like dead swamp cosmetics. So you'll get swamp mud. But swamps and marshes will be left for salt. Now let's look at the final way that the river gives life in verse 12. It's the trees on its bank. You remember in verse 7, Ezekiel noticed the trees, but then his attention was directed away. And now the angel directs his attention back to the trees. It says that the trees will bear every month. The specific verb used in Hebrew for bear here, it's talking about the bearing of first fruits. So every month, the trees are going to have first fruits. Their entire production cycle is going to happen every month. Now, I don't know much about agriculture, but I know that ain't normal. So in the Mosaic system of worship, you know, we hear first fruits and we think of the first fruits offering. Well, here it says there's only going to be first fruits. And what are they going to be for? For food, for the people. And the first fruits are the the juiciest and the best tasting fruits. That's the food that God's going to provide for people in the millennial kingdom. The juiciest and the best, the first fruits. There's going to be an abundance of them. And what's more, it says that the leaves of the trees will be for healing. That's for medicinal use. If the river healed the Dead Sea, how effective do you suppose that the leaves are going to be at healing people's physical ailments. 
colds, arthritis, diabetes, heart disease, cancer. You can only imagine. I mean, when Christ was on the earth the first time, you know, it's often been said that he got rid of sickness and disease and all of the land there. He did so many healings. When Christ is reigning in the millennial kingdom, the leaves are going to provide amazingly powerful medicine. So do you see this river? Do you see it? Are you amazed by its life-giving power? You know, to these exiles who lived by the man-made Kibar River that watered and irrigated the area there, who doubted whether they would ever see their homeland again, who wondered if God's presence would make its home with them again, the angel's question back in verse 6 should have called them to pay attention. Do they really see what's promised? Do they really believe what's coming? Do they believe God will do what he said? Do they really trust him? And sadly, we know that some of them didn't care. If you remember when the exiles were allowed to return from Babylon back to the land, not many of them went. They didn't get it. They didn't see that river. They didn't let it stoke their faith and cause them to hope in God. How about you? Do you see this river? Do you get its message to you? No matter what you think of the current situation, God will make things better than right. And when he does, are you going to be there? Are you going to see that river? If you want to see that river, there's another river you need to see first. Let's go to John, the Gospel of John, chapter 7. And in light of what we just saw from Ezekiel 47, we're going to spend the last few minutes here. John, chapter 7, verse 37. Jesus is in Jerusalem at the Feast of Booths. Okay, let me read uh, verses 37 to 39 of John chapter 7. Now on the last day, this is the Feast of Booths, it's a week-long feast. Now on the last day, the great day of the feast, Jesus stood and cried out saying, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture said, from his innermost being will flow rivers of living water. But this he spoke of the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were going to receive. For the Spirit was not yet given, because Jesus was not yet glorified. <clears throat> now some people say that this statement of Jesus right here fulfilled the river prophesied in Ezekiel 47. That somehow what Ezekiel saw and could only understand as a very real coming reality was somehow now just a metaphor for spiritual life in Christ. Well, I think that's nonsense. The meaning today couldn't be different than what Ezekiel understood it to be. But the texts are not unrelated. It's just we have to relate them the correct direction, okay? So I want to show that to you. In John 7, Jesus was in Jerusalem during the Feast of Booths. 
Now, this feast celebrated God's provision for the Israelites during the Exodus and their blessings that they would receive in the promised land. You can read, it, read about it in Leviticus 23, verses 33 to 43. Now, by the time of Jesus, their celebration of this feast, uh, they added this tradition to it where it symbolized their longing for a second exodus, if you will. They longed for the Messiah to come and establish his kingdom. And so, see, because they believed that Ezekiel 47 and Zechariah 14.8 and Joel 3.18 said that there will be a river coming from the temple, they believed it. And so to symbolize this, what they did every day of this feast, by the time of Jesus, they would have a procession every day starting from the Pool of Siloam, which is about a half a mile south of the temple, and they would fill a jug of water and carry it up, parade it up to the temple. And then they would pour it out on the altar because they believed those texts said that a river of water was going to come out from the temple. And so that was a reminder to them looking ahead to the promised kingdom of the Messiah. And so in that context where that symbol is happening every day, pointing to the reality of this river, With that in mind, Jesus stands up and says, if anyone is thirsty, let him come to me and drink. He's not reinterpreting those passages, making it a spiritualized fulfillment. But what he's doing is playing off of the theme that would have been in their mind. Essentially, he was saying, that kingdom and that river It's not here yet, but the kingdom is near. The king is here. You can taste it now individually. You can have a sampling, if you will, of that coming kingdom. You can have eternal life welling up inside yourself if you come to me and drink. That's what Jesus was saying. He wasn't reinterpreting it. He was pointing to the people to say, experience it spiritually now. And be ready for when it comes. That river is certainly coming. Bringing wide scale changes and blessing to the land. But you can have a foretaste of it now. You can have a foretaste of it now. By experiencing the transformative power of the Holy Spirit. Through repentance and faith in Christ. And in Revelation chapter 20. We know that tells us the believers Christians will be resurrected and brought in to reign with Christ in his millennial kingdom. And so if you want to see that river that Ezekiel saw, to see the transformation of the earth from the sin-stricken, war-ravaged, disease-ridden, catastrophe-laden world into a world characterized by life and abundance, if you want to see peace in the Middle East that will happen in the millennial kingdom, then you must partake today in this river of life through faith in Christ. It's the only way to see that river. Ezekiel prophesied to a people who should have been desperate to have hope in God, that God would be faithful. And as Ezekiel was out in that river, nearly getting swept away, the angel asked, have you seen? How about you? 
Do you need hope when you look at things around you today? Do you want to see that river in the future? Don't leave here this morning without knowing for certain where you will be when Christ returns. Knowing for certain that you will see that river when it comes and revitalizes life on this planet. And believer, fellow Christians here this morning, when you look at the world around you and you think, it's not how it's supposed to be. You know, I can't help but think, when Hamas attacked Israel just two weeks ago, that was on the Sabbath, the day after the Feast of Booths ended. A very feast we just talked about. A feast which included a picture of that river that's to come when Christ reigns. Things aren't going to be this way forever. God is sovereign, and though we don't always see his immediate purposes, this river in Ezekiel 47 gives us hope. It's guaranteed. God will send that river forth from his very presence which dwells in the sanctuary of the temple, and it will make all things new. And I want you to live in light of that hope of what's coming. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much for this vision that you gave your prophet Ezekiel. We're just amazed, amazed at the transformation that that will occur. And we thank you likewise for the transformative power of the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. And we do pray, we pray for peace in the Middle East, Father, and we know it's only going to happen when you send your son back to rule it with a rod of iron yet giving abundant blessings that all would go up and worship you. We thank you so much for the the hope that this brings to us, Father, and ask that we may live in light of it as we go out from here today. Amen.